0: Another episode of Dialogues with me, Richard Reeves. If bail decisions were made by an artificial intelligence instead of by human judges, the repeat crime rates among bail applicants could be cut by 25%. And the reason for that is because an AI is consistent in its judgments, whereas different judges are very inconsistent, or actually, even the same judge can be inconsistent over time. So if you were standing in court, trying to get bail, would you want the decision to be made by human or by an AI? This, this difference in bail decisions, uh, as well as in things like judicial sentencing generally, lots of medical diagnoses, uh, insurance underwriting, are all examples of what my guest today, Cass Sunstein, calls noise, defined as unwanted variations in professional judgments. And noise is the theme of his new book called Noise, A flaw in Human Judgment, uh, which is co-authored with the Nobel Prize-winning psychologist Danny Kahneman, as well as the business professor Olivier Siboney. So the theme here is that while professional judgment and, and discretion sound great in theory, it's especially, of course, to the professionals themselves, but in practice, it means that we end up facing a lottery in some pretty high-stakes situations, life and death situations or liberty, and freedom situations. Now, Cass is one of the uh, right people to be writing about this. He's an expert in regulation. He's one of the most influential and prolific public intellectuals at work today. He's a professor at Harvard, uh, author of dozens of books, probably most famously the 2008 book Nudge, which he co-authored with Richard Thaler. He ran the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs in the first Obama administration. And he's actually now working as a senior counselor at the Department of Homeland Security, where we're all hoping that he's going to fix the immigration system. In our conversation, that we talk a lot about the law and how there's been this uh, interesting history around noise in legal sentencing. There was a two-decade period or so where the noise, i.e. the variation in sentencing, was really reduced after a law in 1984, which was then overturned for unrelated reasons by the Supreme Court. And so it was like a natural experiment uh, in noise reduction and then the return of noise, very considerable return in variation in sentencing since 2005. Uh, That's one reason why he thinks we should have statues of the legal reformer Marvin Frankel who pioneered the 1980s changes across the nation. We talk about how to reduce the creep factor in AI decision-making and how early movers or early influencers really shape uh, public opinion, especially through social media, and plenty more besides. At the end, I try to find some disagreement between us on John Stuart Mill, his shared interest in liberalism, and come up largely empty-handed. Where we do end up agreeing very strongly is in the way that many conservative writers are creating a wildly straw-man version of liberalism and Mill. Uh, in order then to kind of knock it down and declare the end of liberalism or failure of liberalism and so on. So all in all, it's a pretty wide-ranging conversation that gets into pretty big ethical as well as practical issues. And it left me just thinking about where the noise is in my own life and some of the institutions that uh, I'm I'm involved in, which I guess is the point, and it, it may well do the same for you. Anyway, I hope you enjoy it. Cass Sunstein, welcome to Dialogues.
1: Pleasure to be here.
0: Well, uh, we have so much we could talk about. Uh, You've just co-authored what, by my count, is your millionth book. um, I don't know how how many of you are up to now, but 40 or something on on noise. Um, And we're really going to get into that. But I want to say, first of all, it's a great pleasure to speak to you somewhat more formally. We've met briefly, but I've followed your work with great interest. I was somewhat involved in setting up the Quotes Nudge Unit with Dick Thaler, your co-author in the UK and was in the Cameron uh, government, uh, followed your work on Mill. I hope we'll get a chance to turn to that. I want to spend our time talking mostly about this new new book um, that you've co-authored on, Noise, uh, A flaw in Human Judgment, and then into some of the underlying questions about paternalism and nudging and so on too. So that's what I'm, that's what I'm hoping that, that we'll do. Um, I will say we obviously we're not going to talk about your kind of current role uh, at all, but but I, I, do, I do just want to say if you could fix the immigration system, Cass, that would be great. That's all I'm going to say. You don't have
1: to respond. <laughs> Thank you for that. We're trying.
0: <laughs> Good. That's all I'll say on your kind of current job. But let's talk about noise. This this uh, new book. Actually, you have a number of relatively new books, but this one's so interesting because it's you and it's Danny Kahneman. He'll be known to many as having won the Nobel Prize. Uh, and for his work with Amos Tversky on uh, some of these heuristics uh, and so on. And also Olivia Saboni, who's a management consultant. And then obviously you, co-author of Nudge, uh, legal scholar by background, um, policy wonk, et cetera. Tell me a little bit about how that collaboration came about and how it's been working with such a diverse group of intellectuals.
1: Uh, Danny and I uh, did a bunch of papers in the 1990s on jury behavior. And it turns out a lot of the work was on noise about how different juries come up with very erratic judgments. And we tried to understand that Uh, after he published Thinking Fast and Slow, since he's a very good friend, I would get to see him periodically and ask him what he was working on. And in one of the discussions, he said he has a big idea, he thinks, he thinks it's a a large one. And he described it about noise. And I said, what's going to come of it?" And he said, well, we have an article brewing. I don't think much else, but I'm very excited about it. Then I saw him about a year later and he said he was working with a brilliant uh, French uh, academic, uh, Olivier Sibony, on the topic. And I said, that's very exciting. And he said, absolutely. He said, we've written a lot. I don't know if anything's going to come of it, but we're certainly having fun. Then maybe a year or two later, I asked him how it was coming, and he said, well, we're still having fun. I don't think anything's going to come of it. But he had a twinkle in the eye and a sense of excitement that made me feel sad that he wasn't uh, clear that he was going to have a book. So uh, eventually I said, can I have lunch and we can talk about it? Can we go, the three of us have lunch together? And we did, and after the lunch, I remember thinking, that it would be very exciting, though daunting, to join them. We spent maybe two or three hours discussing the topic and policy and law applications. Uh, But it was a little like in high school, you don't ask the most beautiful girl to date you. You wait till she shows some interest. So I was a little feeling like this would be a, a, a day of staring at my cell phone to seeing if he might have the same thought. And the next day he asked, would you join? And that was not a hard question. And I think I answered in approximately one second.
0: So it was a, an intellectual flirtation where you then waited to see if Danny would, would call I waited,
1: you. Yeah. <laughs> it. Was, it was their project.
0: It's turned out very well. And obviously the, the overlaps are obvious and, uh, and I can totally see why the team would have worked so well. It does lead to some some interesting bits where, of course, if you know that, particularly if you know yours and Danny's work, you spend a little bit of time thinking, oh, that that feels like Cass. And that's clearly Olivier because it's this whole discussion of internal management consulting because he was at McKinsey before, right? And then some of this is Danny. But but as it kind of, as it weaves together, it's super interesting, very, very ambitious. I want to start just by getting the concepts. Let's just start with getting the concepts right because there are, a number of different concepts at work here. So this idea of of noise to start with, and the kind of variation you get when different people make different judgments. You, I don't think this is in the book, but you talked about this somewhere where you've actually done this with your own spouse, where you've ranked your friends on different characteristics, and you've done it separately and then joined each other. I must say, given that given that your your spouse, and I don't think it's a secret, Samantha Power currently runs USAID. I'd love to know if you want to share any of the results about any of your own friends. That would be great. I bet you won't yes. name anybody. But...
1: <laughs> so I actually don't remember if this made it into the final version of the book. I hope so. But we we discussed uh, the three of us a little exercise in which you rank friends in terms of diligence kindness let's say that's
0: right you did the three the the, the authors did it we didn't get the spousal versions but yeah
1: Yeah, yeah. so so you say how kind is a friend how diligent is a friend and and let's say how smart is a friend and uh, we expected that there would be noise and that would be interesting and maybe a universe in a grain of sand so i did this with my wife samantha about three of our greatest friends. I I think I won't name the friends, but but our rankings were very, very different. She would sometimes say that person's a three with respect to kindness. And I would say that person's a five with respect to kindness. And we would sometimes differ only because we use the scale differently, where she would think a four was very good and I would think a four was pretty good. Or we differ because we had a different conception of that person. And that was uh, a clue about the different kinds of noise.
0: Yes, and in fact, this issue about how people treat scales does come up quite, quite significantly. Those, those are great examples. And you have you have other examples about how some bathroom scales can be kind of one way or the other. Um, and so you've got this variation. Um, there's a very important distinction between noise and bias. And so maybe using your bathroom scales example or any other example, can just, just explain why... What noise is not just bias.
1: Okay, so you can imagine a scale which has you always a little heavier than you actually are. So it is biased in the direction of seeing you as heavy. It's an unkind scale. Mm-hmm. Now, that scale would be biased. If there's a firm, let's say, that hires men over women, that's that's a systemic bias. A bias would be... Uh, a deviation from accuracy in a predictable direction. You could imagine people are just unrealistically optimistic about their plans, kind of always. That's bias. And bias has a kind of charisma and excitement associated with it. I think that's what we've seen over the last 30 years. A lot of people thinking bias, oh my gosh, that's a problem and we can solve it. A noisy scale would be one that shows you as a little heavier than you are on Monday and Tuesday, and a little lighter than you actually are on Wednesday and Thursday. Uh, a, a, a noisy firm would be one where half of the people, let's say, hire men over women, and half of them hire women over men. And it might be that on average, there's no s- sex inequality in terms of who's hired, but there are, uh, But there's a lot of noise. You could imagine a person rating people, to go back to our first, in terms of kindness. is just very severe about kindness and no one gets above a three on a zero to five scale. Or you could imagine someone who's very uh, surprised by kindness on the part of anyone, anytime, and gives everyone a four or five. And that would be noise across those two people. We, we, We would have two biases, let's say, with respect to evaluation, and it would produce noise across people. And our view is that noise is all over the place, That uh, wherever there's judgment, there's noise and more than you think. And that the enthusiasm for investigating bias in a way has crowded out or uh, crushed potential interest in the topic of noise, which is as interesting and which can be a kind of silent killer with respect to avoiding mistakes. And
0: in, in many ways as unfair because there's an arbitrariness to noise um, and that makes it harder to get at in some ways um, than bias. You know, If you can see, okay, it's systematically, they're not hiring women, they're shooting to the left, it's five pounds under, then you can sort of see a problem and maybe think about correcting it, whereas when it's scattered in that way, it may not feel like such a big problem, but as the person who is at the end of that decision the very arbitrariness of it is it's just a different kind of
1: unfairness um yeah, it's violation of equal treatment so what we find is there are lotteries everywhere mm-hmm. and often with respect to important things the most important moment is when someone is assigned to make the resolution if it's a andy who's assigned the resolution would be different from if it's b barber who's assigned and that's really unfair if we're talking about, let's say, whether you get hired, whether you get promoted, whether you get a long jail sentence, whether you get treated well or not so well by a company with whom you have a complaint. Yes,
0: yeah, so I'm going to d- dig into some of these examples. You cover a huge number in, in, in the book, actually, but there's there's a kind of further tightening of these definitions as we go here. So the next thing is to focus on, and you're very specifically in the book, unwanted Variation in professional judgment. So now we're moving into a different space. It doesn't. It probably doesn't really matter. It's not a professional judgment that you and Samantha are making about your friends as a purely personal one. And it may also not be unwanted. It might make life a bit more interesting that you have different views. It doesn't. It doesn't matter in a sense. But then you focus in on these, and you've already begun to do this, where it's matters of life and death, or or freedom and liberty. It's a medical decision. You um, actually mention asylum. Uh, the refugee roulette paper you refer to, where your chances the chances of getting granted asylum status you know, depend vary massively depending on which judge you end up in front of. So these are these are professional judgments, pretty high stakes, and I think it's because they're quite high stakes that we don't want the variation, that it's an unwanted variation, so you have legal sentencing, et cetera. Is that a fair characterization of the main concern? And could you talk a bit more about the legal case,
1: maybe? So uh, the book focuses on professional judgments, and I say that with a smile because people tend not to start jumping up and down and cheering when they think there's a book about professional judgments. They might think that it's relevant to a lot of stuff, but how much fun can it be? And let me explain why the focus on professional judgments, but why, in my view, at least the implications are broader. So if you have a, an organization, let's say this deciding how to handle a problem that comes up repeatedly, let's say how to deal with uh, a dissatisfied employee or a misbehaving employee, it might be that the firm uh, is noisy in the sense that half of those misbehaving or dissatisfied employees get one kind of response and half get another kind of response. Now, we focused on unfairness, and that's really important to focus on. But it may also mean there's a lot of error. So if the firm is noisy like the scale, and we think of the human mind as a measuring instrument like a scale, it might be that half of the misbehaving employees are treated Much too harshly. They should get a slap on the wrist and be told to do better. And half are treated much too harshly. Um, uh, I'm sorry, that's the half that's treated much too leniently. And they should get at least a slap on the wrist, but they're told, you know, uh, uh, human beings make mistakes and don't do it again, not even a slap on the wrist. So we can see with respect to many professional judgments, not only unfairness, but error and the errors compound. So it took me as third author a while to get this through my mind in a way that I think was productive for the book, because we tend to think that errors cancel out. And if in professional judgments, half of the night, we want to do one thing, half the time they do other things, they're noisy, sure. But there's no error systematically in one direction. We tend to think that that's OK. The average is OK, but it really isn't OK. It's the errors aggregate. So if you have a doctor who overdiagnoses, let's say cancer, and meaning puts you through a whole battery of tests, and when they're really not indicated, and another doctor underdiagnoses cancer, so you get really sick or die, those, that noise adds up, it's like the scale. Okay, so that's professional judgment. But the implications extend to daily life. So I'll just give one example. A form of noise, one reason for noise is mood really matters to judgment. So if you're very happy, you might think, uh, let's go forward with something. And if you're really sad or scared, that's just your mood. That has nothing to do with the judgment. It's because, let's say, COVID is afoot in your area or because someone in your family had a setback. So you're scared or sad. You might think, uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to go forward. And that's about life generally the uh, we call it occasion noise where within the person the judgments can be highly variable depending on whether your favorite sports team won the day before
0: you have great examples of that there, there's these famous studies showing that you get a more lenient sentence if the local team won so there's there's, there's this intrapersonal noise and then there's this system noise that you make a big distinction uh, between and I think you're more focused on system noise. In this book, I'd say the intra uh, is a bit more consistent with the previous work, maybe that Danny's done and that, that you've done, which tends to focus on the individual rather than the system.
1: It's completely right that the main focus of the book on system is system noise, but we have a fair bit to say about occasion noise. And actually, in Danny's work in mind, we hadn't focused on that. Both of us focus on bias. He did the foundational work. I did much more applied work. Um, but it's not about noise within the person. And to see that as an ingredient of um, mistake.
0: Yes, okay. So there's the noise within the person. And if that person is making an important decision, like whether to send me to jail or not, um, then that that that's clearly a concern. Then you add up all those individuals, you end up with this kind of system system noise and this massive variation. I I really like the example that you treat at length uh, of Marvin Frankel and his work on the variation in in sentencing, which led to the Sentencing Reform Act of 1984, which introduced some mandatory guidelines around sentencing. That's significantly reduced noise. The Supreme Court reversed that in 2005. The judges were thrilled because they got to be judges again. I mean, that's how they would see it. But variation massively rose again. So after the Supreme Court took the guidelines away, the variation between the average sentence and the harshest sentence went from about 2.8 to twice that. And so doubling in the variation between the average and the, the top as a result of it. But of course, judges are thrilled. So there's this really that's a great story in terms of system noise as a result of this, of all the factors you just talked about, introduction of some what you would call a noise reduction strategy as a result of Frankel and others' noise audit, Okay, you've got to stick within these guidelines. Sorry, we're reducing your discretion. Reduction in noise, professional rebellion, Supreme Court comes to the rescue, noise again. Is that a, is that a fair summary of that? And then where do you go from where do you go from here?
1: Yes. So uh, we added the story of sentencing guidelines and Marvin Frankel to the beginning of the book, relatively late in the process of writing the book. And we joke that we want statues of Marvin Frankel to be erected in many cities all over the globe. And the story is fascinating. That Marvin Frankel did informal noise audits, as we call them, uh, meaning he just investigated behavior and found that for one offense called shoplifting, the same person could be either subject to probation, go home, or a lengthy jail sentence. And the existence of noise in the criminal justice system, Marvin Frankel, this very spirited federal judge, thought was an outrage, a scandal. He was also interested in bias, but his main focus was on noise, a violation of equal treatment that he thought was um, uh, a horror. A kind of, this was all before Stephen King, but you, Stephen King is sufficiently imaginative that he could insert it into a chapter in a horror novel. Okay, Then the upshot of his heroic work was that uh, our Congress got to, got to trying to remedy it with guidelines. And the basic idea was try to reduce the unequal treatment, try to reduce the bias, and also try to reduce the error by having some sort of systematicity so that you have a, a guideline which isn't tightly constraining, but w- would at least reduce uh, the volume of the noise. And this was regarded by many people as a fantastic step forward in terms of equality and avoiding excessive leniency, but also in some cases of avoiding excessive severity. The federal judges despised it. They thought that, look, they want to engage in individualized judgment given their uh, understanding of the offender and the offense. The fact that their hands were tied was, to them, an outrage of its own. And this is a very interesting disagreement among uh, people of good faith and keen intelligence. We tend to side with the sentencing guidelines the Supreme Court struck down the guidelines not on the ground that they were too constraining, but on, on a different ground, not relevant here. Yeah, it was, a, te- as you it was said,
0: a technicality, wasn't it? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. Well, it had to do with jury trials, so it was a big issue. But it's not the not the noise issue in particular. And the evidence shows that you got a ton of noise afterwards. That the inequality exploded. After the sentencing guidelines were eliminated, political differences between Republicans and Democrats started becoming bigger than they were. All of the things that outraged Frankel, at least to some degree, have rematerialized. And uh, that's very not good let's say. Mm-hmm. What to do about it. Uh, there's a reform project there. It might be that there's something to be done that doesn't defend the jury trial right, which is what the court invo- the Supreme Court invoked, that um, presses judges in the direction of greater um, uniformity. Among, I should say among similarly situated people, you have someone who's did one thing that's really horrible and someone who did one thing that's not so horrible. Of course, that's a legitimate difference.
0: Yes. Uh, and so you're trying to reduce the variation here rather than expunge it altogether. And there are obviously other examples. So we'll perhaps get on to the role of kind of AI um, in, in, in just a moment and how far you can um, you can turn these things kind of me- mechanized, but, it, but it's a great, it, actually let's do that now. Um, Cause I think you've mentioned Stephen King. So why not go down this kind of route? So one, one view of your reading of this is look, once you have enough data, then you can just let a machine do it. Actually, maybe bail would be a better way of getting into this because you have this great example of ba- the variation in, in bail and who gets bail. And actually, this is uh, Sendor Malanathan's work, I think, that you refer to when it to put an AI onto it, uh, gave them three-quarters of a million cases, gave the AI three-quarters of a million cases, said you decide bail with all the same data. And the AI managed to reduce crime significantly. I was actually astonished by how many people reduced on bail recommit. I mean, that's my ignorance. But of the people who get released, uh, 74% were released on bail, 15 didn't turn up for the court case, 26% were rearrested in the meantime. So I had no idea the recidivism rates on bail were so high. It made, made me feel quite conservative about bail, I'll be honest. But the AI said, no, no, let me do it. And it reduced that, that recidivism rate by 24% or put the other way around, it could reduce the number of detainees by 42% over and above the federal government. So that's bail rather than sentencing. But I think the principle applies, which is that AI did a really terrifically good job. And so the judges might see these, stand, these guidelines as just one step towards ultimately, you just walk into the court, it gets the demographics. And then in a different Stephen King novel, you're not... The scandal is not that you are arbitrarily at the mercy of the judge. I mean, Rousseau has this great phrase of living at the mercy of others. But you are instead just treated like a a number and a machine just spits out some, you know, your sentence is or your bail is denied and it's not a human. And so those are great examples of how far this could go. Right. And why shouldn't they go that far?
1: Great. If we may, let's sneak up on that. The idea of decision by algorithm or artificial intelligence makes a lot of people feel creeped out or outraged. And that's an understandable reaction. And sometimes it's right, not nearly understandable. But to fix intuitions, I'd love to sneak up on the the problem. Okay. so first, you could have a system that says whether you're allowed to vote or to drink depends on the individualized discretion of the official. Okay, so the official could say not, how old are you, but could say instead, what do I think of you and your capacity to vote? So on that view, some 12-year-olds could vote. I have a 12-year-old son. He's pretty, he knows a lot. Maybe he could vote. And on that view, maybe some 40-year-olds couldn't vote. I think no one would want that. We have rules for who gets to vote that aren't very noisy, except if things screw up Mm -hmm. and noise in the voting uh, eligibility. That's that's a scandal. And we have some of that. But the basic idea is if you have a certain age, you can vote unless and then there are some specific unlesses. We could say that whether you get to drink depends on the individualized judgment of the bartender or something, or the, the state. Then there's some of that. If you had too much, the bartender might say, "I'm not going to serve you anymore." But we don't have uh, uh, individualized licensing schemes for whether you got to have beer, and and that's good. We have rules. They're not algorithms in the sense of computers are involved, but they're rules. Now let's jump to one example, and then I'll get to yours, one other example. When infants are born in many nations, there's something called an APGAR score, where the medical personnel, doctor, nurse, scores the infant on five dimensions on a, a very limited scale and adds up the numbers, and that tells you whether the infant is in good health. We don't have the nurse or the doctor saying, how healthy do I think the little one is, and that's very good that we have something that's much more rule bound. It has dramatically reduced noise and bias and error. And it's extremely positive.
0: But let's pause there because we will come back to AI. Right, I was running ahead a little bit, but this APGAR one is a great example. Partly because personally for me, you know, when I know I can remember my kids' APGAR scores, but I have no idea what they meant. Um, but it was a big deal that they got an APGAR score. And, What's why the reason it's such a good example is I think it speaks a bit to some of the sort of some of the noise reduction or noise hygiene, as you refer to it in a really nice way. It does. It does a couple of things, it seems to me. It decomposes it. And you talk a lot about this is rather just is this baby okay or not? It's actually okay. Here are the different things you should listen out for. Is the baby crying? Is it responding? What color is it? And so on. And then it has like three-point scales. So it's just baby silent, crying but not very loud, or good, healthy cry or something. Right? I'm not remembering exact words. And, again, you might say, well, that's pretty subjective. But what it's done is it's forced the medical professionals, first of all, okay, here are the things I need to look at. Um, and then roughly what are the scales that I should be listening for? And yeah, you'll get some variation what counts as a loud cry. But roughly speaking, and so it hasn't, hasn't got you to this kind of algorithmic perfection but it has done two things it's decomposed the professional judgment and it's provided some kind of scale and that seems to be enough for that purpose
1: it's more rule-like so i'm trying to reduce the creep factor of algorithms and artificial intelligence by giving the voting and the uh liquor eligibility examples and then the apgar score and we have things like the apgar score in multiple domains whether you've got social security disability benefits uh, in the united states isn't do i think you're disabled enough it's more it's like a rule it's in between a rule and a guideline okay now let's get to algorithms uh algorithms are a little like the apgar score or the voting eligibility uh, with real discipline. So in the context you give, the question is, do we rely on or get advised by an algorithm with respect to whether someone could should get bail? And the reason a judge would give bail is that there's a minimal flight risk and a flight risk, it turns out, is associated with criminal behavior. Um, the data shows a very large data, data set by Sendel Mullenathan and his collaborators. Shows that you, I'm um, going to be, as an English major, I'm going to be uh, qualitative rather than quantitative here. Mm-hmm. It shows that if you rely on the algorithm rather than a judge, you can keep the same number of people in prison as are now in prison and uh, massively reduce crime. That's very positive. Or if you're not that excited about that, you can um, uh, have the same level of crime and massively reduce the number of people in prison. And if you want to adjust along both margins and have some reduction in crime, some reduction in prison populations, tell the algorithm to do that. And it can. And it's going to outperform the judges like crazy. Now, why is the algorithm so much better than the judge's? There are two reasons. One is judges show an identifiable bias. Uh, there are multiple ones, but the most relevant for, for current purposes is uh, current offense bias. The judge over overweights compared to the algorithm what the offender just did. So if the offender did something light, like uh, shoplifting, the judge is more likely to say, you know, Bail. The algorithm will look at a lot of details, like how many other things did that person do in the last 10 years, and will not overweight the current defense. And the current offense bias is, is like availability bias in uh, behavioral science more broadly. The other thing is judges are very noisy. They show a lot of variability. The algorithm has no noise. And that is a significant contributor to its uh, spectacular achievement.
0: The uh, introduction of noiselessness as one of the advantages of rule-based systems and so on, as a, as opposed to or in addition to the reduction in bias, I think is you know, a huge, you know, in some ways, a kind of one of the central insights of of the whole book. And and I agree that obviously this, this, there's a sort of creepiness factor more generally around all this, but one of the positive aspects of the debate about algorithms, and I think you refer to the Compass one that's seen as racially biased and so on, um, is that it makes, I think you say this in the book, it makes it transparent. It means that you're actually having an argument about what should and shouldn't go into the algorithm. And if a bias appears, go, oh, why is that? And you can investigate it. And so it sort of brings into the harsh light of day the contours of the judgment in a way that if it just remains within the opaque mind of thousands of judges, you never know. I don't know what your algorithm is, Cass, and you don't know what mine is. Um, and so we'll never know. Um, and because they're all different, you get these noise effects. Whereas if we say, if even just as a thought experiment, saying, let's have an algorithm for bail. Like, even if, if you end up not doing that, just it flushes out all these issues that otherwise remain buried in the sort of grey matter of the judges. And I actually quite appreciate that transparency of the debate, even if I don't know where it ends up.
1: Completely. Thank you for that. So it's often said that algorithms are a black box and not transparent. And along some dimensions, that might be true. We might want to have a Bill of Rights for algorithmic regulation, which would require transparency. But if you have an algorithm that ends up, let's say, treating women and men differently, uh, we can see that. And we can see maybe why. Mm -hmm. And if it's not on the surface of it, why? We have a a detective story where we might be able to find out who the killer is. So you might find out that men are being treated differently from women by the algorithm because, let's say, height is part of what the algorithm is paying attention to. And that should be on the surface of the algorithm. If it isn't on the surface of the algorithm, it might be height is correlated with some other thing that the algorithm is caring about. And that allows uh, potentially much more access to the source of discrimination than you can get if you have human beings who say, I'm not a discriminator. And there's a profound point you're making, which is that when we see problems with algorithms, one problem might be rigidity, another might be indifference to considerations that should matter. A third problem might be some sort of demonstrated bias amidst the noiselessness we can interrogate what's going on in the algorithm and understand something about our practices that we might not understand if we just had a thousand human beings, each of whom denies that they're a discriminator.
0: Yes, and I think that that's the flushing out of these normative issues or the making transparent of them so that you have to justify them in plain light of day or not is important because, of course, discrimination is now a word that we we think of as only a bad thing, but if you charge young men more for car insurance than young women, which most, which insurers do as it happens, that's because they're actuaries and it may not be an AI, it probably is an AI now, I'm sure, but, but previously it would just be an actuary with lots of tables if you discover that's because young men are more likely to crash their cars. Right, and so you might say, "Well, isn't that are you discriminating against young men?" And the insurers say, "Yes, we are, because they're more likely to crash their cars." Now, of course, it gets more difficult when you introduce race and various other issues. But at the very least, you're you're not sort of wash, waving away the fact that there might be some difficult issues here, like should car insurers discriminate against men?
1: You're right. In a democracy, what you're describing, or a non democracy, it's very important. So, a less inflammatory case would be let's suppose an algorithm charges older people more for insurance than younger people. Let's say human beings are involved. The algorithm decides that older people are more likely to be in car crashes. Uh, and let's suppose it's urged that that's a form of discrimination we would learn that if we didn't charge them more, uh, we might be on certain assumptions about the facts defying actual risks. And if we defy actual risks, we might learn something about the economic consequences of not discriminating against older people. And as you say, discrimination of certain kinds, like if someone has been in 20 car crashes in the last two years, their rates might be higher. Than if they were involved in zero, that's discrimination against those involved in lots of car crashes. And that's probably not invidious. And in harder cases where something is correlated with something, we'd ask, is it invidious? And we'd have the relevant considerations on the table rather than hand waving by both sides.
0: Yes, exactly. Yeah. I, I want to turn now to go, go back a little bit um, to the issue of juries, which you mentioned earlier, and another kind of intro- introduction of noiselessness. So you get a lot of noise in groups, uh, such as juries. Uh, there's lots of other examples we could choose, but juries is a good one because we're in this the legal space now. Let's imagine that the sentencing has been somewhat reduced in terms of its noise through the introduction of, you know, the reintroduction of guidelines to start with, right? We're a long way from it being an an AI. But you've still got the jury deciding, and it seems as if the evidence is quite strong that we influence each other so strongly that you actually don't get wisdom of crowds when the crowd's talking to each other. And so the wisdom of crowds requires the crowds to be silent and the jurors to be kept apart from each other. Is that right?
1: Uh, yes, so I served on a jury once in my life, and uh, it was hilarious. That I, w- I didn't want to serve on a jury because I am really busy. Um, it was a terrible two-week period, and uh, I said that I am a law professor and I study jury behavior. This a number of years ago, and I was sure that I'd be bumped from the jury. Saying that I wasn't, it was truthful, and I wasn't sad that I'd be bumped from the jury. I was kept on the jury. And I served. And I was told later by uh, by the prosecutor that the prosecutor tried to bump me. But the judge insisted I be on saying that I learned something. I'm not sure that's appropriate for the judge. <laughs>
0: it was, it was so, used, as a, a, used as a learning opportunity for you. But also, yeah. I, I, I love the fact you're honest about the fact you didn't want to serve because the truth yeah. is everybody wants to be uh, tried by jury, but no one wants to serve on a jury, or very few. It's one of those
1: specific yes. problems. It was a very tough period given work commitments, but I did it. And uh, to your point, um, they wanted me to be the foreman, my fellow ju- jurors. And I declined, and the reason was I was a law professor and I thought I should shut up because I'm going to have outsized influence on the group. And I certainly shouldn't be the foreperson because if I was, my role would produce outsized influence. So I tried to be really, really quiet. It was a factual question on which I had no particular expertise. And the, the question was, how can we aggregate our diverse judgments? So uh, let's start with um, a company's decision about to go forward with some project and then get to a jury. Uh, you should imagine any group's decision as producing one of a cloud of possibilities. So I was in the White House when President Obama decided to go after Osama bin Laden. Uh, He made that decision. Uh, That is a singular decision, but meaning it's not repeated, not the particular, at least. And that that, what happened was one of a cloud of possibilities. Science fiction writers are very good at putting a spotlight on the cloud of possibilities. Um, The product, go forward with the project decision, might go one way because the leader of the company says, I think it's a really good idea early on. And then let's say uh, a deferential person or a cowardly person says, I agree with the boss. And then uh, a third person might say, I agree with the boss and the coward. They wouldn't put it quite that way. And now we have a cascade developing in favor of going forward. That might be, Uh, an unnecessary and might be a bad outcome. It might be that if the leader of the company had said, I'm not sure really, what do you all think? And I really want your independent judgments. uh, A lot would emerge that would suggest the project's a bad idea. And, And that would be a different outcome and by hypothesis a preferable one. Or a third one, the company had, might turn to, let's say, the most trusted lieutenant and say, what do you think? And if that person says, I think the project is a terrible idea, that might initiate a cascade the opposite of the first scenario. Now, juries are exactly the same. If you don't elicit the independent views of members, it can be the outcome is determined by the most confident or earliest or seemingly most expert speaker, and that ensures uh, a failure, which is a failure to elicit the information the group has. So groups are noisy in the sense that one group can come to a result that is radically different from other groups, which are identical, except for something in the social dynamics. And the work I did with Danny Kahneman in the 1990s on punitive damage awards mm-hmm. found extremely high levels of noise in, in juries.
0: It's very interesting. There's this influence of effect. And actually, the, the famous example from Wisdom of Crowds is this kind of guess the weight of the cow thing from that English kind of you know, village. And what's always forgotten about that, and people did very well, but they didn't see each other's guesses. Whereas here, you've got, you know, they're totally independent. Here, you've got this dynamic where people affect each other. And you even, you refer to, you don't name the website, but it's a very well known website, social media, where people upvote and downvote people's comments. So it doesn't probably take too much work to figure out who you're probably talking about, but it's extraordinary how an early, I mean, I'm thinking about this, I've got a new podcast, right? So I'm thinking about how many five stars I'm getting on kind of Apple right now as I'm reading this. And I'm like, God, I hope the first ones are good because you find this extraordinary effect from the early mover influence. It's not just the strength of the influence. It's the earliness of the influence,
1: right? Yeah, There's amazing data on this. and uh, I'll I'll give a few. Um, An early upvote artificially generated by an experimenter can make a comment super popular after large numbers of of seemingly independent votes so if an, an initial this is great can drive an outcome that's one another is a study of the wisdom of crowds which demonstrates your point which is that crowds can be wise in making numerical estimates like the weight of an animal But if people are listening to one another, the wisdom of crowds is greatly diminished. It's a counterintuitive result, but it's because of the importance of eliciting independent judgments that's crucial to the wisdom of crowds effects. And there's a big lesson in that for companies and governments and organizations of all kinds. My very favorite of these studies is done by Duncan Watts and his collaborators. I think it's a profound study and it shows that If on a music site, which has many thousands of visitors, um, you let people know what is getting early downloads on the music site, a song can do spectacularly well or flop compared to a control in which they don't see what other people are downloading. And the reason is the same song in one world of visitors can flop and do another do spectacularly well is just the enthusiasm, the serendipitous enthusiasm or lack of enthusiasm of early downloaders. Now, the reason I think that's profound is the success of President Trump, the success of President Obama, the success of... Uh, various ideas, the success of various products is best explained in part by reference to cascade effects, that early people or people at exactly the right time started creating a snowball, which got bigger and bigger and bigger. And that suggests we often think in hindsight, it was inevitable that Taylor Swift would be generally regarded as amazing. But though she is amazing, there are other people, admittedly not quite amazing as she, but definitely amazing, about whom we've never heard because they didn't get the benefit of the equivalent of early downloads.
0: Yes, and that also highlights the point you've made here and elsewhere in your work about how retrospectively we all drift towards causal thinking. It was obvious Taylor Swift was going to to do well, and we tell her, a kind of retrospective story about that um, but i think it is it's powerful especially in the context of social media i think one of the challenges of social media ecosystems is that they make these cascades stronger and faster and you've actually your previous work on social norms and norm cascades i think speaks more generally but you know the upvote thing the downloads it's it's instantly visible it's instantly communicated and social media Oh, I'm going to say this as a statement, see so if you agree with it. I think the social media has taken that early, early mover influence and just amplified it massively and accelerated it massively. Is
1: that fair? Completely. And because history is run only once, we don't see the role of serendipity and early movers in generating important outcomes. So the wor- this is one reason the world is much noisier than is apparent because the cloud of possibilities that only one of which materialized, the others are just not visible, except if some historian uh, or science fiction writer um, captures it.
0: Do you think that on balance, the world is getting noisier? I mean, I think in the long run, this I don't think you touched this on the book, and it's just occurred to me now, but over the centuries, probably argue it's gotten less noisy. Like we have laws and administrative law, which you've written a lot about, and so on. So I think on the long run of history, you'd probably say we're a bit less noisy today than we were in the 17th century, probably, or even the 19th century. But I'm not sure we're less noisy in 2021 than we were in
1: 81. I learned from co-author Kahneman always to see such questions as testable hypotheses, which would need to be tested. And so I'm agnostic on the answer to whether we're noisier now than we were. I'm not even sure what the precise version of the hypothesis is. If, if, the, if the question is what, um, uh, is the criminal justice system noisier now than it was in 18, the 1800s? That's in the nature of a testable hypothesis, and we'd need some data.
0: Mm, would be interesting an interesting subject, but I suspect, getting the data for that would be pretty difficult. Well, um, let's just—I I want to t- turn in a moment to paternalism more broadly, uh, and perhaps we can get into Mill. But there is a whole—I just want to point out there's a whole series of solutions outlined in the book from the noise audit, which is effectively kind of look at how much unwanted, how much variability is there, how much of that is unwanted. Having someone who's like a decision officer who's just thinking about the way. The decisions are made, and then this you have a sort there's a whole taxonomy or a suite of different approaches. That you could have rules, you could have guidelines, you could have standards. You could you could subject some of it to an automatic kind of AI, depending on the context, and so on. So there's a there's a whole range of tools you could use. But the key thing is to just start by thinking about it. Right? You talk about decision hygiene, like washing your hands. Just ex- go look for the noise. Accept that noise is there. That's probably the biggest message. Right? Is just Go have a look, and then you can, you could, uh, you can fit the solution depending on how big the problem is.
1: Yes. So whether you are a little company or a big company or a university engaged in hiring or a government, uh, you can do a noise audit by which you either look at actual decision making and get clarity that the most important choice is who makes the decision rather than the circumstances and the person about whom the decision is made. If you know that, you know you have a noise problem. A noise audit, we have an appendix on how to do it. You give a bunch of people a scenario or a bunch of scenarios and see how similar they are, how much variation there is. Chances are there will be more variation than is anticipated. Wherever we've done it so far, that's, that's what we find. Then if you see a high volume of noise, probably you're going to be alarmed at the inequality and error that the volume of noise uncovers like a scale that shows you as much heavier and much lighter than you are depending on the day it is you want to fix that scale and there are things you can do that that will work in reducing noise if you aggregate independent judgments that that works so in medicine sometimes it's obligatory to get a second opinion for certain kinds of illnesses. And if you have five doctors independently agreeing on what the diagnosis is, the chances that group of five is going to be uh, comparatively not noisy and probably not less biased also. So aggregating independent judgments is one. The APGAR score writ large is another. Using something between guidelines and rules tends to work really well. If you don't make a holistic judgment based on your intuition, but instead uh, break the judgment down into let's say five component parts and uh, uh, assess them independently before you make your intuition. That can be extremely helpful as well. Uh, These are decision hygiene strategies, and the beauty of them is they're like washing your hands, meaning they help you against a variety of diseases, and you don't have to know which one is in play. For bias, it's a little harder and a little easier both, because you discover, let's say you are showing the planning fallacy, meaning you're unrealistically optimistic, and you kind of know what to do. There's a debiasing strategy for that. Um, that's easier because you're identifying things. It's it's harder because the task of identification might be very challenging. There might be a lot of biases in place. Hygiene works without identifying what the culprit is.
0: Yes, bias, attacking a bias is more like treating a condition, right? You've got this bias, here's the medicine, whereas hygiene is about just kind of preventing the general spread of all of these nasty, nasty things. And it's just a good moment probably to to say also that the, the noise audit probably carries with it a presumption of you looking for the unwanted variation and to kind of just... Reemphasize exactly. that point, because there's lots of wanted variation in all kinds
1: so of people. So, so we define noise as unwanted variability. If, uh, you know, you have three great friends and one likes some movies and another likes others, that's not unwanted variability. In a meeting, to have varying views about how to handle a problem, that's a good thing. That Diversity is a good thing. It's when you want judgments to be identical and they turn out to be dependent on the lottery that is unwanted.
0: Yeah, so I think that's why every word in that definition does quite a bit of work. You you might you might have wanted variation in professional judgments. You might have unwanted variation in non-professional judgments. Like maybe maybe there's only so much variation that you and your wife can have in how you think about your friends before it's hard to go away on vacation.
1: Okay. <laughs> Think of a, a prediction where you have someone saying the economy is going to boom and other someone else saying it's going to bust and uh, that the judgment about policy is dependent on which one you happen to draw. That would be very bad. Yeah. Um, if you have inputs into the decision, which are differences in judgment as an input into how people are going to think about it, that's not unwanted. That's part of the deliberative process. But if whether you act as if the economy is going to boom or bust depends on the lottery of who happens to be in charge that week, that would not be good.
0: That's why noise rather than you know, sound, which would be a neutral term, or even music, which would be a positive term. People don't you know, sit listening to the variation and all the sounds coming out of the musical instruments at a concert and say, oh, what's that noise? Well, I guess depending on whether you like the music or not, you might, <laughs> but, yeah. but it's the difference between noise and sound.
1: Think of it as a noisy scale is not a good scale. A scale whose weight they show you as being depends on the day. That's, that, you've got to fix that scale. And the mind is a measuring instrument. And often we have to fix that scale.
0: Yeah. To be clear, my weighing scale is just, is always biased. and always says I'm heavier than I than I, I must be. Yeah, it's, I the explanation. it's true, isn't it? It's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> they all seem to be biased that way.
1: Yeah, mine is the same. I, I think it's, it's a conspiracy or something.
0: They must manufacture them that way. So I want to talk uh, just at the end, uh, a, a small bone maybe to pick with you. We're both big fans of John Stuart Mill and, the arguments that you make in favour of libertarian paternalism, particularly as you outlined with Dick Thaler in, in Nudge, but in a lot of your work. And, in fact, the book, I think, where you spend most time on this is Why Nudge, which based on I think, one of your lectures, um, uh, and this idea of autonomy. And I guess the, the, the bone, that I'll pick the bone, and then this might open up a bit of a, a conversation, which is you make the argument that, Mill's harm principle is, that like, if I'm only hurting myself, I should be left alone, right? And the reason for that is because I know what's best for me. You say that's the epistemic argument, right? And you say, well, that's not true. It turns out that Mill couldn't have known this, but we've done all this work, and we now know that I don't know what's best for me, or at least I'm lousy at, at getting it. So Mill was just wrong in his kind of estimation. And the small bone, and then it is just, I think Mill did know that. I mean, Mill wrote in Utilitarianism that men often, from infirmity of character, make their election for the nearer good, though they know it to be the less valuable. Right? So he, like I think everybody since the beginning of time, knows that we don't always make those choices in the right way. And the reason I think he focuses on autonomy as the solution or noble character, to use his language, is he's, he thinks the solution is to make ourselves better, is to become more skilled. And he's hopeful that we will become more skilled Whereas I think your view, and I'm, I'll caricature it probably, your view is more: you now these are just fixed, right? We we ain't gonna, we're not gonna get better at this. We're always gonna be short term and so on, and so we're just gonna have to put these nudges in place or policies in place. And so mm-hmm. a, the difference is that Mill's more optimistic that we can all become more noble in character.
1: So, so maybe you're raising great questions. So Mill, in On uh, Liberty, says that the reason for the harm principle is that outsiders can't know as much as choosers do. And that's his epistemic claim on behalf of the harm principle. Mill didn't uh, fail to know that human beings are fallible. He was making a comparative judgment about outsiders versus choosers. And there's a lot of truth to what he's saying, but it's not as um, global a, uh empirical uh truth as he described it as. So I know what kind of ice cream I like better than I think anyone on the planet, but I don't know what healthcare plan I should have better than anyone on the planet. And I don't know how best to handle, let's say, a disease I'm going to get in the next 10 years better than anyone on the planet. I know some relevant things about my tastes, but about treatments, I I don't. I don't know how to navigate, uh, let's say, the airport in Saudi Arabia, where I've never been better than others. Uh, In fact, I'm quite sure I don't know very well. So some nudges are good. Uh, The idea that um, we should improve people rather than nudge them is often true. But as a policy prescription, it's uh, what's the right word? incalculably coarse. So a GPS device is, is a good idea. A, a uh, allergy warnings on certain packages, are, that's a good idea. Um, to give people signage at airports such that they can figure out where to go. That, that, that's a good idea. Rather than telling people you know before you take your trip, learn how to figure out where to go in the airport. Um, There's a discussion to be had about whether automatic enrollment in savings plans or free meal plans for kids is a good idea, but it's not self-evident that the right idea is to give people at what time in their lives, uh, a course in financial planning. Or a course in whether your kid should be in school school meals, so it's emphatically true that improving people's capacities is often the best approach. But to use that as an argument against nudging uh, is—I'm not even sure what the words are. Want to abolish the GPS device?
0: No, you're right. The navigability point, I think, is well made. And actually, the default retirement one is quite close to home because I was in the serving in the Cameron Clegg government that really moved forward on that and helped set up the behavioral insights team. And there's a conversation internally. There's a sort of standing joke because I was working for Nick Clegg, which is that people would say, what would John Stuart Mill say? Is this is this liberal? And this came up in the context of the de- default environments. And my boss, Nick Clegg, was what I would describe as a good pragmatic liberal, like liberal to his bones, but also not willing to die in a ditch over small stuff. Um, and there was opt out, so it just you change the default and so on. And again, I think it's a difference between a sort of libertarian who would be like, "This is an outrageous infringement," on and a liberal who says, "Okay, there are v- different values at stake here. How do we how do we land on it? Does this protect freedom enough?" etc. Then you make you've made this argument too about um, uh, seatbelt rules, too. I think that I think that's a really good answer. I think what happens in this conversation is that the extent to which Mill and those like him was talking about autonomy, rather than liberty is quite important. And actually, although it's called On Liberty, whenever he, he tended to use the word autonomy a lot, um, especially in French more generally, and I think that's more consistent with what he's talking about, this idea of learning to self-govern. That's why he was in very favour of local government and so on too, as opposed to this sort of space of liberty, like Leave Me Alone. It was more the vision of the individual here is of one who has become more skillful, more self-governing, better able to overcome these present biases and so on, more more skilled in the world. And that that's actually what he means in the end by utility. It's why he's a bad utilitarian, because in the end for him, it's not welfare and it's and it's not social welfare, which are a couple of the moves you can make. It is this sense to which the individual is able to become more of their own GPS. It doesn't mean you don't want a GPS or signs and so on, but the, the balance between how much of this is from me and how much is having you done for me uh, is just... Somewhat more, and he, he would see progress as being individuals being able to do more or more of these things themselves, not not know their way around an airport, but be better at saving, be better at managing. Then be, be just a bit, to be better, crudely.
1: Well, I I agree with that. You know, broadly speaking, that seems to me completely right. But let's say people are buying appliances or uh, motor vehicles, and the question is whether they should be nudged to buy um, ones that would save the money, let's say, because they're more energy efficient or fuel efficient. And let's say the nudge would take the form of information disclosure that tells them how much money they'd save if they got an energy efficient refrigerator rather than one knob. Now that both improves their capacity for agency and uh, nudges them. I I hope Bill wouldn't have an objection to that. Let's suppose that uh, workers are entering jobs where they could be given a lot of information about statistical risks, both probabilities and outcomes, or whether the workforce could be subject to, let's say, some clearly cost-benefit justified regulation, which would reduce the risk of uh, death by a magnitude that crushes the cost of the risk reduction. That would be not a nudge, but it would be, let's say, on plausible assumptions of behaviorally informed intervention, contracting both absence of information and present bias. It would seem to seem to me theological, not in a good way, to rule that out of bounds on the ground that workers should be given risk education with respect to silica and silicosis.
0: Cass, I think those those are all great points I Perhaps I can invite you back on at some point to to have a, a longer conversation about this. And I think one of the reasons I f- I'm wanting to have this discussion is because I think that this is not from you, but I'm seeing from some conservatives a sort of straw man version of Mill where they impute to him a less sophisticated view than the one that you just shared, which is he thought that people were all-knowing and that consumer sovereignty was great and, and, and so on. And because that's clearly not true, liberalism fails. So they take Mill, say... They straw man mill, knock him down, and then say, that's why Patrick Deneen does this and Why Liberalism Failed.
1: No, I, I agree with that. So the uh, descriptions of liberalism by Patrick Deneen and others are, are wild. It, there's, there's, it's as if there's a construction of something and then a series of exclamations of, of horror. And engagement with the liberal tradition itself um, let's say, uh, gives a much more, uh, what's the right word, inspiring picture of the conception of our species than the critics offer.
0: Well, thank, thank you for saying that. We can agree on that. And you can perhaps, if you next, when you next speak to President Obama, you can tell him that when he recommended Patrick Deneen's book well, saying he disagreed with much of it, but nonetheless recommended it in 2018. That was a low point for many of us. And so if you could, if you could ask him not to do that again, that would be yeah, much appreciated. Yeah. <laughs> but this has been great, Cass. I'm uh, so grateful to you for your time, for coming on. We've scratched the surface of some of these issues at the end, but I, but spent a lot of time on this really impressive new book that you've worked on with this great trio of writers. There's much in there to, to ponder on. And actually, I think to use as well. Uh, and I think that's why the collaboration worked out so well. It's something that, even just as someone in an institution myself, I'm going to be taking that back and talking to my bosses at Brookings and thinking, huh, we should think about where our noise is and where do we want it to be and maybe do an audit. So it has the, the rare, I think, the rare gift of a book that's both very, very deep, but also strongly applied. So you and your co-authors
1: well, have you to make sense. That's, that's an honor. The uh, number of hours spent on the book uh is really really high so if it turned out okay that's uh that's a that's a, a great honor
0: i think it's going to make a lot of noise but in a good way this time so Cass, thanks again for joining me
1: thank you great pleasure great to see you
0: thanks for listening to dialogues i hope you enjoyed that conversation And if you did, please take a moment to follow, like, rate and share the podcast in all the usual places and send me your thoughts and ideas, including for future guests to dialogspod at gmail.com. That's dialoguespod at gmail.com. I'll see you next time.